president responds to a critic. I don't want to hear any more of these lies about reckless spending. We're changing people's lives. Yeah. Gas at an all-time high, shortages in everything from construction supplies, hygiene products, to food? Well, as we all said more than a president ago, you can keep the change. And in a crisis, the first casualty is usually the truth. So strap in. You're with TNN. 
Truth News Network. I'm Dan Newman. Oh, hi there. And welcome to another TNN Live show. It's Thursday, and we're just looking ahead and trying to make sure you're all in the Christmas spirit along with us here. And I know that was a little different start for the show, but I thought you could stand a a little bit of Good King Winslow's an instrumental format to get us going today. Well, it's Thursday, and it's a great Thursday to be alive. (laughs) Don't you agree? I mean, come on now. It could be a lot worse, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what mine are. It could be a whole lot worse. You know that. I know that. So why don't we just make the best of today, no matter what the circumstances are that we find ourselves living in today? Yeah, we can make it better. It could be better, no question about it. And we can do that. We just don't have to demand it all to be perfect right now. You know, I'm going to tell you something. And for many of you listening, you know exactly where I'm going when I say this. Life is a process of putting circumstances together. Now, you want to make sure, to the best of your ability, that the circumstances you pile up are all good. But guess what? It doesn't always work out that way. There are too many things out there that are really a vital part of our lives that we don't have a lot of input over. I wish that we could control every circumstances, every circumstance in our lives. I wish we could. I think we'd do a better job if we could. At least I think we could. I don't know everything about it. I'm a 69-year-old guy, and just when I feel like I've got all the circumstances in my life tied together and everything's just peachy keen, something falls out of whack. (laughs) That's without any control of my own. There's nothing I can do about it. Those are the things that we need to make sure what we can control, we have in place. And it's in the right place. We've got a good perspective of it. We're comfortable that it is the right thing to be doing, the right place to go. And so as long as we have that most of the time in our lives, when these uh, blindside things happen, you know, those things that are unexpected, maybe they're not really bad, but because you didn't have them planned out. You know, it's like uh, uh, your least favorite uncle just happens to drop in on Christmas Eve. About the time you're inviting Christmas Eve party guests to come over, he didn't get an invitation, and he didn't even bother to tell you he's coming by. So what are you going to do? You're going to turn your uncle away? No, you won't. You'll try to make it the best of a bad situation. That's what I'm talking about. When the unexpected hits you, just make the best of it. Do the best that you can can best that you can. And if you can't make it all work out perfectly, so be it. Just deal with the radioactive fallout. That's what living life is all about. And just when you think you can't have more things bad happening in your life, 
there's somebody that is a living around you that you probably know about. You may not know personally, but you know about them. And their circumstances are worse than yours. The opening of the show yesterday, I referenced a tornado that blew through here about four miles from our studio. A very, very known part of our area to us. We have friends that live in that specific area. They were spared. But a woman and her son, her young son, were living in a home. And in just one moment, that tornado hit that home, exploded the home, picked her up, picked him up. They found her three blocks away. Of course, she was deceased. But her little boy, they found him three miles away from the home that the tornado had obliterated. Just be thankful today that you're not making plans to bury your kid or your mother or a sister. And you know what? Even though we're not prepared for that, we have no control over whether it's going to happen to us or someone we know or love. Bad things often happen to good people. Live for the day. Be the best that you can today. Be the kindest you can be to everyone in your life. Smile at somebody you don't know. And if you get an opportunity, shake somebody's hand, pat them on the back, wish them Merry Christmas, and ask somebody today, is there anything I can do for you? Is there any way I can help you? Are there any troubles that I can give you some advice on? It'll blow your mind how if you do any of those things or all of those things, how it will impact the lives of other people in dramatic fashion. And folks, if you look around the world, there are a lot of things going on that we absolutely have no control over. I mean, just think about this. Just think about how quick really big things can happen to some really big, very important, and even multi-billionaires in our lives. Just before the midterm November elections, just a month ago, Sam Bankman-Fried was a left-wing, multi-mega-billionaire heartthrob. I mean, look at his life. Look behind him. Do you know anything about him? He properly grew up on the Stanford campus in California, where his parents were well-known left-wing activist law professors. He went to a Tony Prep school, and then he went on to MIT. Bankman-Fried mocked society's bourgeois capitalist conventions. How did he do it? He dressed and looked like a slob in cutoffs and T-shirts all the time. He bested the nose ring Charles Manson-esque appearance of former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. He outdid the all-black Steve Jobs copycat get-up of another fallen leftist icon, the now-convicted felon Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos infamy. The left canonized Bankman Freed. Why? For the hundreds of millions of dollars he created out of thin air. But not so much that. The fact that he channeled a lot of that to left-wing congressional 
and state candidates, uh, President Joe Biden and a host of other progressive causes and candidates under the cool slogan, Effective Altruism. For decades hence, or so Bankman Free promised, his cryptocurrency company FTX would churn out billions. It's politically correct gifting won exemptions from the Federal Trade Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and Democratic-controlled Congressional Oversight Committees. The loud-talking left-wing slob promised billions of dollars more in gifts to come. He was knighted as the successor to the kindred financial market manipulator and progressive philanthropist George Soros. Sam Bankman-Fried may have been a sloppy, immature fool, but he was no dummy. He learned early on that loud leftist talk, big promises of philanthropy, and huge cash infusions to the media and leftist candidates, all under the veneer of effective altruism, ensured de facto immunity for his Ponzi schemes from both bad press and government intervention and investigation. Then, suddenly, the midterms were over. Powerful financial interests were screaming. Their millions had vanished at the hands of Sam Bankman-Fried. The Republicans took the House. They promised embarrassing hearings with Bankman-Fried, the loose-talking star villain. And so, presto, he was finally indicted by the Biden Department of Justice. Bankman-Fried, in desperation one last time, had turned to his old props of raggedy dress, nerd talk, and contrived naivety. His shtick, it didn't work any longer. Too many leftists were embarrassed that they got too much money from him. Too many exposed regulators had known what this wannabe Bernie Madoff character was up to before the midterms. The now albatross Bankman Freed was loud and everywhere, then suddenly not. And he won't be again. In contrast, consider how the left now despises Elon Musk as much as it once worshipped Sam Bankman Freed. Musk once mixed vaguely liberal politics with the David versus Goliath self confidence as he took on big auto and big space, and he won. But then he turned to Twitter and big tech. Or rather, Musk realized Silicon Valley was no longer the irreverent embryo of boy geniuses he remembers from his youth, which outsmarted and preempted the global technology establishment. Instead, it had become a dreary, constipated place of hardcore uncompromising leftist in need of a shakeup. Tech moguls use their billions, their monopolies, and their exemptions from oversight to warp the way Americans searched the Internet, communicated with each other, voted, and accessed the news, all in service to left-wing causes. Musk mortal sin? It wasn't just buying the money-losing Twitter. 
and reinventing it as a free speech platform. It was not even exposing the company's rot of a lazy, overstaffed, woke, and pampered workforce and its giddiness in censoring free expression and wounding the public careers of any who challenged the status quo. Musk's crime was far worse. First was the sin of betrayal. A month ago, all those Teslas on the streets of Palo Alto, Austin, and Cambridge were virtue signally proof of green moral superiority. Then suddenly, these still wonderful cars are seen as fuel for the Prince of Darkness. Musk, of all people, now the progressive apostate, would dare to end Twitter as a left-wing bulwark. And he promised to flip this time-tried Pravda to host anyone to say whatever he pleased. Second, Musk doesn't much care that the left hates him. No doubt he regrets the billions he paid for the overpriced money-losing company. No doubt he frets that Tesla may lose sales once yuppies and greens trade in their Tesla amulets as if they were now some godforsaken gas-guzzling SUVs. But otherwise, Musk has the resources. He has the youth, the genius, and the energy to do to social media what he did to the space and automobile industries, revolutionize it, open it up to keener competition, and to reject stifling orthodoxy. How sad that the left despises a man who built real things against the odds and took risks to champion free speech. And how predictable it worshipped the leftist fraud who built a million investors and ruined the lives of tens of thousands of others. The hatred of the accomplished Elon Musk and the worship of the hollow man Bankman Freed are sad commentaries on how liberalism has descended into progressivism and ultimately into Stalinism. Whoa. You're getting down there deep, Dan. Well, guess what? If it quacks and if it waddles, it's a duck. And this whole story is about a bunch of ducks walking side by side. Correction, waddling side by side and quacking their little beaks off. And it's about time that somebody stands up, not just the little boy watching the parade, but me and you and everyone else and scream at the top of our lungs, the emperor's naked. He's not wearing anything. (laughs) Oh my gosh, our comparisons descend into a little boy at a parade (laughs) talking about the emperor and the Mrs. Emperor being nude riding in the parade when they think they're dressed in clothing so gallant, so amazing that only enlightened people like themselves can see the clothes. (laughs) How do you think Sam Bankman-Fried feels today about 
all that he went through over just the last six months. He was king of the heap. He was on the top of the pile. Everybody wanted to be around him. Living in a penthouse in the Bahamas with 15 other people, they were having sex orgies every day, all day. Money, he had it running, literally running out of every part of his body, his briefcase, his bank. He could get on the phone and in a matter of moments not spend a billion dollars, tens of billions of dollars. And then in the blink of an eye, he actually said this. The first day this whole thing blew open and somebody got him on the phone and actually put it on the air. All I have now in the bank is $100,000. I guess it's all in perspective. You put in perspective that he had hundreds of billions a couple of days previous to that. What a ride, some would say. Yeah. At a lot of other people's expense. Does this mean don't trust cryptocurrency? No, it's not. FTX is not cryptocurrency. It's a place where people can go and send their crypto coinage to for these people to exchange for you. In other words, selling your crypto and buying some others or keeping yours and just simply buying some others. And they just hand the transactions in the middle. And for doing that, you give them a little piece. It's a stockbroker's office. Uh, It's like the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and uh, the stock market. That's what it's like, but it's for crypto. No doubt about it, FTX was corrupt, as, as corrupt as any business venture could be. And a lot of people lost their livelihoods. Many of them lost their life savings. But it doesn't matter. It does matter, but it doesn't matter who lost how much. All that matters is this happened. (laughs) This happened right out in front of the eyes of some of the most powerful people on the planet that not only watched it happen, they applauded it as it happened. And then all of a sudden they're, they're clapping their hands. And then they say, oh my gosh, did he really do this? And two sentences later, they're talking about how evil he is. It's amazing how circumstances change and how circumstances change our perspectives, isn't it? Well, let me, let me get into, um, really into something that I want to make sure everybody, those of you that have joined the show, let me see, let me see who we have. We have a big crowd from all over North America, South America, the Caribbean, Canada, Europe. So let's do this. It's Christmas time and everybody's out. You're about, you're shopping, you're buying presents, you're going to parties. I was with uh, five of my favorite people at a dinner last night, all six of us, every year for a long time, years. We get together. We went to college together. Some of us in the group dated others in the group. We all settled down. We have our families pretty much raised. We go to church together. We're friends. 
and it was a great time to get together and just catch up a little bit, but it was just good to be there and celebrate each other. This is that time of year. In the middle of doing all that, I want you to not forget about something very important, something critical. Big Brother is watching you. Big Brother is looking at you. He's listening to you. He's seeing everything you do. And you've heard that your whole life. In fact, George Orwell, in the late 1950s, he wrote that book, 1984. And he forecasted a surveillance state. In other words, a state where Big Brother watches everything, sees everything, knows everything you do. And what I want to do is I want to realist, uh, I, I just want to show you exactly how big a deal it is, surveillance, and not by Big Brother, our federal government. They're in this thing, but they're not the only ones in it. But let me tell you who's in it way, way, way deeper than most of us think. Well, I won't tell you. I'll let you listen to this. Listen closely to the next few minutes. Welcome back to our special tonight on tech tyranny, because tyranny is what it has become. Google, by far the biggest corporate threat to the privacy of your personal life, the company recently submitted patent applications that reveal Google's willingness to put cameras in your bedroom and spy on your children, then use that information to sell things. Currently, Google does not have a camera in every home, but it does have a phone in millions of pockets. So the question is, how much information does Google get from those phones, information about you? Fox News Headlines 24-7 anchor Brett Larson went out to investigate this exclusively for our show. Watch. We wanted to figure out what exactly Google is learning about us throughout the day. So here's what we're going to do. We have two identical phones. The only difference between these two phones is this one is in airplane mode. Both of the phones lack a SIM card, and they haven't been set up to access any Wi-Fi networks. So for all intents and purposes, these phones have no connection to a data network. We're going to keep them with us throughout the day. And while I travel around D.C., we're going to figure out just what Google is finding out about me. Our first stop, Sims Convenience Store, just outside our Fox Bureau. For quick coffee. From there, we took a walk to the Capitol and took a quick walk around the Senate office buildings and then decided to hop in a car and head around town. Hello. We're going to the Children's Hospital, please. To run our tests, we had to do more than walk the block, so we took a tour around our nation's capital. First, due north to the Children's National Medical Center Hospital, then west to St. Albans School and the National Cathedral. Our tour around town was a 14-mile journey that lasted more than an hour. Hour. The entire time, the phones had no access to the Internet. Oh, my goodness. Not a Wi-Fi connection and not any cellular data service. It almost seemed quaint to assume that Google wouldn't even be able to collect data on me. Let's head back to the bureau, my friend. Ugh. A church is beautiful. Google's business model is simple. Collect data on its users and then use that data to sell targeted ads. It's a business model called surveillance capitalism. But does that critical data collection work even when your phones aren't connected? So we're back here at our Fox Bureau in D.C. And we've got both of our phones exactly how we left with them. The only difference, really, I snapped a couple of bad selfies at the National Cathedral. <laughs> a couple of Bad selfies at the National Cathedral. <laughs>
but otherwise they have stayed in my pocket for the entire day. So let's find out what they know. This is our man in the middle device. It's basically a Wi-Fi network that these phones are gonna connect to once we turn their Wi-Fi on. It's going to pass data through it on the way to Google, but on the way, we're actually gonna get a copy of the same data that Google's gonna get. We'll be able to decrypt it and then find out where we've been throughout the day. Within minutes, the numbers rolled in. The phone that wasn't on airplane mode registered more than 100 locations, 130 activities, and even 152 barometric readings. As soon as it hooked up to our Wi-Fi, it transmitted 300 kilobytes of data straight to Google. The phone even logged our exact locations, tracking us all around town, the Capitol, the hospital, the school, and the cathedral. Now, you may notice what's missing here is the exact route that we took, but it got that data, too. It knows when I got out of the car. The metadata has a time log down to the very second, tracking everything when they think that you're walking, riding, and yes, even getting out of the car. Okay, so you're thinking, this isn't a big deal. I'll just put my phone in airplane mode. Yeah, we thought of that too. This is the other phone that we had with us that no SIM card also remained in airplane mode the entire time. Let's see what kind of data it captured. The phone with airplane mode activated actually logged more locations and activities than the other phone and it also transferred hundreds of kilobytes of data to Google as soon as it was activated. The only thing that's missing from this map is our stop at the Children's Hospital, but it still knows we were there. There it is. Exiting vehicle, 100% accuracy. Through complicated user agreements and free software, Google gets users to sign away their privacy for nothing. They're even following you in the places that most people would expect total privacy. Government buildings, a children's hospital, a private school, a church. Every move you make every step you take, Google is watching you. It is a, a scary conclusion to come to if you are using an Android device. Uh, Tucker, we should also we should point out, as, as we mentioned in the piece there, that when you are using Gmail, if you're using Google Drive, any of their services, you're actually not using a pro you're not a, using a product. You are the actual product. You are what right. Google is selling to advertisers, and that data that they collect about you is then turned around and sold to advertisers to more to give you that very specific level of advertising. I don't think people fully appreciate that. So, I mean, this is a remarkable report because it reveals right. that you don't have control of the surveillance. They, in effect, lie to you and say that you do, but you don't. Right. But what about iPhone users? Now, this is an interesting twist here. With iPhone users, Apple is capturing a lot of information about you, but they're not using it to sell you advertising. They're using it to better the services that they offer. But if you are using Google applications on your iPhone, it, in many instances, is actually capturing all of that same data. So any Google app, so if you have Google Maps, for You're example, which Google I Maps, think it's every take... living human being with an iPhone <laughs> yes, does. Yes, you do, because Apple Maps, I'm sorry, Apple Maps is as, uh, an inferior product. Right. But yes, if you're using Google Maps, which most of us are, it is constantly tracking your data. Also, as we learned earlier in the month, if you're using Google Search, and said, stop tracking me, but you're using Google search on your mobile device, be that on an iPhone or an Android device, they are again capturing your location information. It's unbelievable. It wouldn't be such a big deal if you could trust the com company if they weren't working on behalf of the fascist government of China. <laughs> it might make us feel better. Brett, thank you for that reporting. <laughs> Tucker, thanks for having me. I thought it was groundbreaking. Well, that was principally about Google and Google Android phones. Uh, before you poo-paw, that, let me just point out, that little experiment, you know, driving around Washington, D.C. with those two 
Google phones not even turned on and all that data and information they captured even without having any power, that whole experiment, that was four years ago. Just imagine how much further down the road to total surveillance Google and Apple and who knows who else really are. The point is, folks, <laughs> information and getting information and using information and selling information, it's impossible to block. You cannot stop it. I guess you could. I mean, if you went out in the middle of the ocean, maybe uh, Fiji, maybe that's not even a good explanation. But it would be, I would believe, a little less unincorporated and unmanufacturing friendly and all those kinds of things than, say, Los Angeles, for sure. But don't take your phone with you. Don't watch television. Don't ever wonder what's going on and be lulled into doing a computer Google search because Google <laughs> Google will find you and they will sell where you are to somebody that wants to know. Hi, this is Jack, founder of Jack in the Box. Is the caller there? Mr. Box, Douglas Gompertz from Burger Week magazine. Oh, hey, Doug. Doug's a respected fast food critic. I recently dined on your sourdough Jack combo. And? Perfection. The cheese, the jumbo patty, the golden sourdough bread, the french fries. Bravo. Well, thank you. However... I found the dessert a bit dry. It doesn't come with dessert. The candy. The white, round candy with the happy face. Was it wearing a scarf? Yes, I believe it was. Rosy cheeks? Fuzzy earmuffs? Yes, that's it. Douglas, you ate a holiday ball. <gasps> We're giving one away free to customers who buy a sourdough jack combo. But they're not for dessert. They're for antennas. Or a pencil. Right. Well, that's going to improve your score dramatically. Excellent. Few things bring as much joy as the delicious taste of Coca-Cola. Like your first time camping or falling in love on a blind date. And now, our new Coke bottles are sip-sized and made from 100% recycled materials. So every bottle can live on to create more memories. That's endlessly refreshing. Coca-Cola. Bottles are made from 100% recycled materials excluding cap and label. Enjoy the great taste of Coca-Cola in a new sip-sized bottle that's made of 100% recycled materials. Genuine Ford Parts and Service presents a word from your wallet. Are we at the gas station? Yeah, I know. I'm feeling these gas prices, too. I'm the wallet down here. Head to a Ford dealership. Why? Proper vehicle maintenance. A new air filter can save 19 cents a gallon. Correct tire inflation up to 6 cents a gallon. Wow, that sure adds up. Fat wallets are very in right now. Right now, Motorcraft air filter replacement is just $19.95 or less. Replacing a dirty air filter can increase fuel economy by as much as 10%. Well, done. That was easy. Maybe you should listen to your wallet more often. Well, you're typically pretty quiet. Well, I didn't want to be a pain in the... Uh, 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 uh. Hurry in for the best deals we've had in years. Money-saving rebates on brakes, batteries, tires, and more. See your participating Ford dealer today. In a world of change, one thing remains constant. The bedrock of truth. Welcome to the Truth News Network. Truthnewsnet.org We're going to get into our own immigration issues in just a little bit. But before we do, I want to point to someplace probably don't even think about having bad immigration problems. Hundreds 
of thousands of migrants, many said to be coming from Ukraine, are now expected to arrive in Europe over the coming months. This is according to the head of one NGO, non-government operation, is claimed. Jan Eglin, the Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, has claimed that hundreds of thousands more migrants from war-torn Ukraine will likely arrive in Europe over the coming months. While many EU member states continue to wrestle with either addressing or silencing these concerns, Eglin believes the situation is likely to get even worse due to winter weather and Russian strikes rendering much of Ukraine unlivable. Nobody knows how many, but there will be hundreds of thousands more leaving Ukraine as the horrific and unlawful bombing of civilian infrastructure makes life unlivable in too many places. She went on to talk about fear that the conflict could overshadow other humanitarian issues across the world of similar importance. Investigating Eglin's claim, Reuters notes a spokesman from the United Nations High Commission Commissioner for Refugees as saying that while data has not yet indicated a significant increase in border crossings, small rises in arrivals from Romania and Poland have already been seen. So as the war continues to rage in Ukraine, with no sign of stopping, migrants continue to pour over the borders of many EU countries, ostensibly for the purposes of getting away from war and persecution. However, while a big number of arrivals in Western Europe are legitimate Ukrainian refugees, not all are. According to the Financial Times, the number of migrants arriving from North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia is at its highest level since the 2015-2016 European migrant crisis. Furthermore, some politicians have expressed concern that many refugees arriving from Ukraine actually have their origin in another country, with one publication in the country claiming that as many as one in three alleged Ukrainian refugees in France actually comes from somewhere else. Today, a third of the refugees who pass through Ukraine who do not come from Ukraine, but come from sub-Sahara Africa in particular, they use this new migratory route to come to Europe. There are those who come from economic reasons, who weigh down our public accounts and our social accounts, and the Ukrainians toward whom we have a duty of European solidarity, of course. It's interesting. Our southern border is a ticking time bomb. And you don't think much. I mean, I don't. I, th- I knew that there were a bunch of people from Ukraine that were being displaced, but I didn't so much think of them as migrants. I felt like they would be people that would mostly go somewhere else until this war gets over and they can go back and rebuild and try to make a life for themselves back in their home country. But then I didn't realize Ukraine is kind of a melting pot nation. Um, It's been picked apart, pulled apart, cut up, sliced. It's been different countries and contains different regions that have different names that formerly were countries. So there's a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different nations of origin really within Ukraine. So I guess basically... For people in Northern Europe especially, 
and these Ukrainian people that are displaced because of what Putin's doing to their homes and the places they work and their kids go to school and all of those kind of things rolled into one. It probably looks a lot like our horrors at our immigration southern border problem. I just didn't think that there would be any place on the planet that would have what we're facing today and what we're going to continue to face. Why are we going to continue to face what we're facing down there? It's simply because the Biden administration won't do anything about it. Next week, the 21st, is the day that Title 42 ends. That's D-Day for illegal immigrants when it comes to coming to the United States because when Title 42 is gone, the Biden administration has no legs to stand on any reason to legally turn these migrants away. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's what they're telling us. Are you telling us all that there are no laws, no immigration laws whatsoever that give the federal government the right and the power to stop any illegal from coming into this country? No, that's not what I'm telling you, but that's what the Biden folks are telling you. Here's the whole thing. I I just, I got to be honest with you, and I'm not griping when I tell you what I'm about to tell you. I was up all night. I didn't sleep. I had so many things on my mind. And so at spots during the night, I would flip over and look at different news reports. And I wanted to see the different perspectives about what's about to happen at our southern border. And it's not waiting until next week. It's already started. Listen, these people, principally Mexican, principally cartels, and maybe their counterparts in nations like Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and some of these South American and other Central American countries, they all look at our southern border as a cash register. These people in these countries don't have the ready access to go start a company You know, the capitalist system that we just take for granted and those on the left scream and holler about how unfair it is and we need a government that just takes care of everybody. Yeah, that's really worked throughout history. It hadn't worked any place on the planet. There's not a socialist country on the planet today that has done any good for anybody. They all throughout history have imploded, every one of them. And it's not going to be different. Those brain surgeons in D.C., those far lefties that talk about it being their utopia, they don't have a clue either that or they believe if there should become a socialist slash authoritarian entity that would govern the United States of America, they wouldn't be out in the hitherlands of America just living normal lives. Oh, no, they're going to be part of the endowed group the authoritarian group that governs those plebes. Can you believe we have people like that serving, quote-unquote, serving in Congress? They really believe that, and they were elected, and the people that elected them know that they believe that. 
So our southern border is a ticking time bomb. It's a cash register for the cartels that have been marketing their services for people that live in Mexico and all of these Central American and even South American countries. Hey, 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 you get up here, we'll help you get from the southern border of Mexico all the way into the United States, and it's only going to cost you this. Sometimes those cartels do what they promise to do. Sometimes they won't. And who's going to hold them accountable for the times that they want? Because if you try to, they'll just kill you. Human traffickers, drug traffickers, smugglers, you name it. And the Biden administration has no plan to stop it. We got a little information overnight that there's a flurry now. I heard it called in two reports overnight, a flurry of concern coming from the White House. A flurry. That's like a snow flurry. (laughs) Can you believe this? Not only has this been growing for several years, and we knew it was going to happen, and the Biden administration knew it was going to happen. It's their CDC that issued Title 42. It wasn't Donald Trump. It was the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And the whole substance of Title 42 was all of these people coming in from Mexico and Central and South America, we have no idea what their physical status is. And this was implemented during our pandemic, so we don't know what their COVID status is. So that gives our government a legal right to turn them around and send them back. But that expires. Now, what are you talking about, Dan? The legal right, we have to do this. We do have immigration laws. That may shock some of you, but we do have some, and we have a bunch of them. A bunch of them, this president, when he was senator, he was part of writing them. And, of course, nobody wants to remember those laws that are on the books. Why? Because there are very specific requirements of what can be done when people come into this country illegally and what must be done. Ooh, they want to ignore those things. They don't even want to talk about it. They don't want to even acknowledge that those things are there. Why? Because then they would have to answer the question, why, Mr. President? Why, Mr. Secretary, why do you not enforce federal immigration laws? Republicans point their fingers at Democrats and say, because they won't do anything. Democrats point their fingers at Republicans and say, they won't do anything. We can't get laws passed that are good. You know what? The ones that you passed, signed into law, were good when you did it, If they have parts of them that aren't good, hey, guess what? You're the people's representatives. Sit down, talk through it, make some revisions, and if you can't revise them to make them quote-unquote good, change them. Do away with the ones that are there and pass new ones. Well, we can't reach agreement. That's what a democracy functions on, disagreements. 
Nobody expects 535 people to get into one big room in Washington, D.C. to agree on everything in a bill. It's never going to happen. It's never happened. It hasn't happened throughout human history. But that's not what it's about. It is not, democracy is not about getting everybody in the room to agree on everything. It's about having disagreements, trying peaceably to find agreement on specific bills, parts of bills, paragraphs, sentences, whatever. Find things in these pieces of proposed legislation that you can deal with. The others, you try to convince somebody that is not like-minded to turn into believing your perspective. They're at the same time trying to do the same thing with you. And if you can't reach consensus, what does democracy say you do? You stay with the one what brung you. In other words, you stay with the laws that you created before and you enforce the laws that you created before and you do not grab power that you don't legally possess. You don't grab it from the American people and ignore any parts of the law, even the ones that you think aren't good. It's not your place to say one is not good. It's your place, if it's not good, to do your best to get it changed. And if you can't get it changed, you're supposed to say, we're just going to agree to disagree, but I'm going to do what I promised to do when I raised my hand and put the other one on the Bible and say, I pledged an oath to the United States Constitution, the rule of law, and I will support the Constitution and every duly law passed in the United States while I'm in office. Every one of them, all 535, pledged to do that. How many of them are doing it? Overnight, one representative got up in the House of Representatives, and uh, I've heard him. I've kind of liked him. I've been on the fringe but I can tell you he's one of my heroes now. Representative Chip Roy, we have, you may not like what I'm about to tell you, but it's in reality. I told you two days ago, reaffirmed it yesterday, it is now a fact. There is a $1.7 trillion omnibus bill that they are close to getting passed. Now, I'm not going to go into what it contains. Congressman Chip Roy does a little bit of that while he's on the floor of the House last night and he has got a big stick and he's waving around his head, that big stick, and he just unloads on his fellow reps. I thank the, uh, the speaker, I thank my, my friend from Pennsylvania, and, and, and I thank the gentleman from California, and, and I understand uh, the collegiality of the body and wanting to engage, happy to engage, we should never get a chance to engage. Like, we're down here basically in a fake debate. That's what we all know. 
I mean, the truth is, it's not like we have a body, the chamber filled here with human beings debating this $1.7 trillion while we're $32 trillion in debt. I would be happy to. Why don't we actually roll our sleeves up around these tables and do the work? But we don't do that. We're literally down here. We're going to do, what, 30 minutes aside if we even do that? Right? And then what? We're going to vote. We're going to vote on a rule that packages together, as I said, deeming has passed a House bill on federal agency reporting goals with a House amendment to a previously passed Senate amendment to pass a $1.7 trillion omnibus combined with a CR for an extension for a week in a lame duck Congress. Like, that's the truth. And the American people pull their hair out. They go, gosh, what on earth is happening in Washington? Well, I'll tell them what's happening in Washington, this. This is what is happening in Washington. We know what this is about. This is jamming through a bill at the 11th hour to get the political priorities of the current Democratic majority, and a handful of Senate Republicans are happy to do it so they can get pork. The House and the Senate has requested a total of $16 billion for 7,500 earmarks. The top requester, Senator Richard Shelby, ranking member of Senate Appropriations with $656 million. This is a nice little send-off for the appropriators in the Senate. But the fact of the matter is the American people are the ones who get screwed in this deal. They're the ones who end up losing their country with $32 trillion in debt. There is no justification for ramping up spending an additional 10% for non-defense discretionary after all the money that's been spent under COVID and using the Defense Department as the backs upon which you're going to place the debt of our children and grandchildren and say that, oh yeah, we're doing this for defense. That is just wrong. At what point are we actually going to do the work of the American people in the people's house? At what point are we going to actually debate? At what point are we actually going to amend? At what point are we actually going to live within our means and stop writing checks we can't cash? The American people are staring at us. They throw their hands up in the air and they wonder what has become of the country that their brothers and sisters and dads and moms and daughters and sons have fought for. Why do we stand in front of that flag? Why do we open in prayer? Why do we say the Pledge of Allegiance if we're going to rip apart the flag right here in this body, in this chamber? Because that's what we're doing. Using backroom deals, dropping these bills on the floor, and not allowing us to actually engage in debate over these important matters. Ladies and gentlemen, the American people are tired of spending money we don't have, and they're tired of open borders they're tired of empowering bureaucrats like the FBI. They're tired of forced vaccine mandates of the Department of Defense. They're tired of an IRS harassing the American people, allegedly for more revenue. They're tired of an NIH and a CDC making it up as they go along and shutting down economies and jamming it down the throats of the American people. They're tired of an EPA and a Department of Interior restricting Americans' ability to have reliable energy. The American people are tired of it. I hope help is on the way. I'm glad that Republicans seem united against this in the House. And I'm looking at Mitch McConnell when I say this. Do your job, Leader McConnell. Do your job and follow the wishes of the American people who gave a majority to Republicans in the House of Representatives. And let's stop this bill. So it is said. So let it be done. I've not heard words nearly as wise as those from anybody else. I'm talking about from the U.S. Senate side or in the House of Representatives side. Then we just heard from Representative Chip Roy. He expressed the voices of the American people. Now, let me ask you this. We don't live in a democracy, 
Our country was never founded to be a democracy. It is a republic, which means the people are the controlling elements in governing this country, this nation. But because the country is so wide, so vast, so so tall, our forefathers, with their great wisdom, they knew that we would never be able to get everybody in the a room at the same time to be able to craft laws, etc. So they created this as a representative republic. In other words, we all elect representatives to go to D.C. and be our voices in crafting laws in governing our nation. And so they created the U.S. Senate, which is comprised of two in each state, and they represent the states, the states' rights in the voices in the government. The other side, the House of Representatives, they set up different congressional districts and the people elect from their particular zip codes, which they didn't have then, but you know what I'm referencing, people that live in your neighborhood, live in your town, live in your city. We elect representatives to go to D.C. and represent us in that way. So our states and our state governments and our governors are represented by the Senate, and the residents and citizens of the United States are represented directly by the House of Representatives. Then those two departments get together and they reconcile legislative bids for the good of the people. And if you have disagreements, you're going to disagree. Try to work them out. If you can work them out and find some consensus, but always, always the undergirding element that must be job one is what do the people that I represent directly, what do they want me to do? How do they want me to vote on this particular issue? I guarantee you, if that question was asked by any one of the 535 direct representatives in the House of Representatives and the Senate, 535 of them, if any one of the 535 went back to their district and state and walked down the street and each talked to 10 people, 10 people, just stop somebody on the street and say, hey, what would you think about your government getting together with a few like-minded other government representatives and put together a five, 6,000 page bill that nobody's read. Nobody knows exactly what's in it. Nobody will read it. And the sum total we're told, we don't even know if it's accurate, is about $1.7 trillion. And what we do know is a bunch of that is going to pork projects that aren't for the betterment of the whole, but they're for the betterment of a few hand-picked high-level campaign contributors or groups in these various states and congressional districts that these people represent. If all 535 went out and did that, how many people would be fine with that that they talked to? I guarantee you, not a single one. Not a single one. So what gives them the right 
to go to Washington, D.C., ignore regular order. What is regular order, Dan? You talk about it all the time. That's how Congress is structured. That's how any Congress and any government is structured. The people that represent the citizens, they get together. They present ideas. Hey, what do you think about this? This is what I'm thinking about doing. Put a plan together. Throw it out there. Okay, whoever leads that particular branch, either the House or the Senate, they elect among themselves somebody that's going to stand up there and be the boss. In other words, the person that determines how the process that they chose to work, how it works specifically regarding each individual piece of proposed legislation. That person assigns it to a committee that was put together to discuss the various types of issues. This committee takes it up, and they look at it, they talk about it, and then they'll start coming up with ideas, ways to change little parts of it, and those are called amendments. They propose the amendments. The fellow members in that committee vote on those amendments, up or down. After they get through with all of that, then if the committee votes that they want it to go back to the full House or the full Senate, for debate by everybody else, they voted out a committee. It goes back to the leader that sent it out for them to work on, and they put it on the calendar to be considered by the full House of Representatives or the full Senate. When it goes to the floor for floor debate, there's all kinds of debate. Senators and legislators from other districts, they express their ideas. They make and offer amendments. Those are discussed. They may be added. They may delete some amendment that came out of committee. It's called regular order. That means they have looked at it from every quarter, and they can honestly tell the people that they represent, we know everything about it. We know what's best, and this piece that we put together is the exact model that collectively represents what's best for the United States of America. $1.7 trillion of tax revenue that won't come into the government for the next decade. And they're throwing it together in four or five days, folks. Nobody's read it. Nobody knows for sure what's in it. And they're going to ask each of the 535 members in Congress to vote for it. That, my friends, is the definition of insanity. And those are the people we chose to go up there and represent us. Real truth, real news, TNN, the Truth News Network. Grab an ice-cold can of Celsius and stay active and energized all day. Celsius is better for you energy, made with premium ingredients, zero sugar, and seven essential vitamins, with no high-fructose corn syrup, no aspartame, no preservatives, and no artificial colors or flavors. Celsius is just the essential energy you need to keep you fueled and active all day. Celsius, essential energy, live fit. Now find Celsius at Celsius.com or a retailer near you. 
We're outside Pilgrim Furniture and Mattress City where parents are disappearing. Excuse me, are your parents in there? Yeah. They can't decide if they should take no interest for 60 months with no money down or an extra $100 off every $9.99 they spend. It's a tough choice. But they've been in there for six hours. I want dinner. Parents, if you're at Pilgrim, please make a decision. Uh, I'm crazy hungry, so she's got to be too. Slide through the Mickey D's drive-thru to get a Big Mac. Right after I order her quarter pounder with cheese, because I don't know everything, but I do know what my girl's feeling hangry meal. Get it at McDonald's when you buy one of your faves, like the Big Mac, quarter pounder with cheese, 10-piece chicken McNuggets, or filet of fish and get another for just a dollar. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Valid on item of equal or lesser value. New home ownership can be a real eye-opener, but it's the perfect time to look into Homeowner 101 from The Home Depot. Free live streaming workshops taught by expert associates. Now at homedepot.com slash workshops. You'll find indoor and outdoor workshops, even home systems workshops. Plus, you'll get the know-how you need to care for your biggest investment. Master the basics at Homeowner 101, only at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Register now at homedepot.com slash workshops. Just looking at the news and catching up on things, and this one just popped out. The Taliban controls Central Bank of Afghanistan. They put several pictures up on Twitter this past week showing a large pallet of cash sitting on an airport runway. The bank, this is the Central Bank of Afghanistan, claimed that that pallet contained $40 million in various currencies a big chunk of it, U.S. dollars, and it was delivered as humanitarian aid by unspecified donors. It seems a little bit fishy, and I'm looking at some of the pictures myself, and they are big stacks of $100 bills, and they have that barcode on the side of each clump. It looks like it would probably be maybe $100,000 in $100 bills in each one of the clumps. And they're sealed in a package. It's not like, you know, you get them uh, and you put a band around them yourself. This is the second package that has arrived in Afghanistan this week. That comes from a spokesman for the bank. The bank expressed appreciation for any principled action that leads to the transfer of reserves to the country and helps the needy people of the Afghanistan society. So after posting still more of these images of the carefully wrapped stacks of money, the bank claimed that the cash was handed over to a commercial bank in Kabul. Afghanistan Bank made several nearly identical claims of receiving millions in foreign cash over the past two months without ever specifying who made the donations. The amount cited by the bank in pallet of cash claims from September and November was also $40 million. In November, Afghanistan Bank claimed two $40 million pallets of cash received days apart were in addition to funds provided for quote-unquote humanitarian aid. They reported the latest money shipment brought Afghanistan's total foreign 
U.S. cash reserves up to almost $1.5 billion. Now, that's the U.S. portion of this. Some eye-popping photos of a cargo plane unloading pallets of dollar bills originally covered about $400 million. But the Obama administration eventually admitted paying an astounding $1.7 billion to the terror masters of Tehran in hard currency. Remember that? $1.7 billion. So we kind of we just kind of got that kind of habit. Our government throwing around big pallets of money that obviously are untraceable. Oh, man, I just love our leaders in Washington. (laughs) And then you hear this, what Joe's up to. The Biden administration, they're going to fund 12 critical mineral mining projects in foreign countries. And it seems like good policy to help out, right? Well, they're doing it to advance its climate agenda, despite continuously impeding domestic mining ventures. Under Secretary of State Jose Fernandez, he's head of the Secretary of State Department Economic Growth Energy. He told Axios that the government is considering funding around a dozen overseas mining, mineral processing, and recycling projects. And they're doing it as President Biden looks to secure more critical minerals, which are needed to manufacture green energy technologies. However, the Biden administration has previously worked to block large mining projects in both Alaska and Minnesota, citing quote-unquote environmental concerns. Joe Biden continues to put foreign jobs over American jobs. That's from Minnesota Representative Pete Stauber, the top Republican on the Natural Resources, Energy, and Minerals Subcommittee. This activist administration is pushing an energy transition which requires minerals. So the Federal Export-Import Bank and the Development Finance Corporation, which is bankrolling a nickel mine in Brazil, will provide the funds to aid overseas mining developments. The Biden administration will use the Mineral Security Partnership, a global partnership that seeks to expedite the procurement of critical minerals and will work with Canada, the UK, the European Union, and other allies and fund foreign mines. On December 2nd, the EPA recommended preventing operators of southwestern Alaska's Pebble Mine from disposing of waste material in the nearby Bristol Bay, a regulation that would prevent the mine from opening. Over a 20-year period, the mine could extract about 1.5 billion tons of copper, molybdenum, as well as other critical minerals that are needed to create solar panels and geothermal energy facilities. That's according to a report published by Northern Dynasty Minerals, the mine's owner. We have an abundance in the U.S., including the Duluth Complex in my district, which alone contains 95% of America's nickel, 88% of our cobalt, and more than a third of our copper, Stauber said. For political reasons, the Biden administration won't allow domestic mining. The Department of the Interior in January revoked permits for two twin metals mines 
in Minnesota, stating that mining operations could contaminate a nearby watershed, according to a department press release. The mines would have produced copper, nickel, and cobalt, metals that are essential in producing wind turbines and green energy batteries. Mining advocates and GOP lawmakers have stated environmental regs and the burdensome permitting process are causing the U.S. to lag behind its competitors in the hunt for minerals. It can take up to 10 years for a company to get approval to even begin mining, one of the longest global wait times worldwide. On behalf of the American worker, I will hold this administration accountable, Representative Stauber said. Yeah, right. Does any of this stuff that Biden's doing, does it have a common thread that goes right through the middle of it? All of the minerals that we just mentioned, that we have an abundance underground in Alaska, Minnesota, other parts of the nation, and a couple of them specifically are necessary for batteries. Joe Biden's ramping it up to build electric vehicles, right? Got to have a bunch of batteries, right? Guess where we are getting those precious minerals that go in those batteries? We're relying on China. Now, why would Joe Biden have any kind of business agreement, something so critical as batteries for cars, and be so reliant on China? Let's see, I'm thinking. Joe Biden, China, China, Joe Biden. (laughs) Oh, but there's no there, there. Quit even thinking about it. That's a conspiracy theory, Dan. (laughs) So we talked in the top of the show about our southern border problem and how bad it is. We compared it to what the European Union is facing right now in the wake of the Ukraine war. We're going to have a flood. They're saying 14,000 a day, every day, beginning the 22nd of December. Do the math. I'll, I'll do it with you. Let's do it together. Okay, let's do 14,000 a day. And let's just say, oh, nice round number of days, 365. 5,110,000 in a year. Now, that's their estimate. You want me to make my estimate? Double that number. That seems a more realistic number. Double anything that our government gives us for a number, except, Money revenue, (laughs) they always double the estimates of that, right? So, a lot of people are saying, well, why didn't the state of Texas get aggressive and go down there and just seal the border? Why, Why didn't the state of New Mexico or Arizona or California? According to the Constitution, the United States of America, the government has the unilateral sole right, all things immigration related. So states can't do it. Joe Biden's not doing it. Joe Biden's not going to do it. 
The Biden administration is taking Arizona to court right now over a makeshift border wall that Republican Governor Doug Ducey has constructed in the wake of his historic levels of illegal immigration. The suit filed Wednesday pertains to the placement of shipping containers along the border that the Biden administration argues trespasses on federal lands. Not only has Arizona refused to halt its trespasses and remove the shipping containers from federal lands, but it's indicated it will continue to trespass on federal lands and install additional shipping containers. As a result, the United States brings this action to obtain appropriate relief for Arizona's unlawful continuing trespasses and invasions of the United States' paramount sovereign property rights and interest under the U.S. Constitution. That's in this lawsuit. Ducey, by the way, sued the Biden administration in October for its failure to protect the southern border, maintaining that the state of Arizona had a right to defend itself as it could not rely on the federal government to ensure its security. The safety and security of Arizona and its citizens must not be ignored. Arizona is going to do the job that Joe Biden refuses to do, secure the border in any way we can. We're not backing down. That's what Governor Ducey said. So as the year comes to a close, Ducey's going to have to step aside for Democrat Governor-elect Katie Hobbs, who's already spoken out against the makeshift border wall and has vowed to remove it. The ongoing crisis at the border has seen more than 2.3 million migrant encounters in 2022 alone. Those are the ones that Border Patrol actually got face-to-face with. The rest of them that they haven't gotten face-to-face with, they're called gotaways, and the estimates are it's an equal number. So we're looking at about 4.6 million. That's no big deal. It's no big deal. Joe Biden, he gets billions of dollars. He's asking for $4 billion more now from Congress before they leave next week. He wants it for border protection. <laughs> you got a snicker. I had, I told you we went to this dinner with close friends last night. And uh, it's three guys, three, obviously, three wives, three husbands. And so the guys get to talking about, you know, political things going on. And we live in the South. We live in Louisiana. And everybody that's listening in that from up North, you know, Massachusetts, Maine, Minnesota. We even have people from Alaska listening in. You all look at us down here in the South and you think we all drive Jeeps or beat up pickup trucks, four-wheel drives, of course, and we all have dogs that ride in the back of our pickup trucks and we have gun guns mounted in the rear window of our pickup trucks and we wear dirty old worn-out boots and blue jeans and suspenders. That's kind of the, uh, 
the makings of what a southern man looks like, right? And of course, guns are the big thing. And so we got to talking about it. You know, Texas, um, Louisiana, and going east a little bit, Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and Florida. That's what we really call the South. And there are some real rednecks that live in the South. And oh, by the way, I don't know if you knew this. Maybe you never heard this, but you know the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, that group that those on the left continue to call out and anybody that disagrees with any progressive cause or perspective is a white supremacist. That's, of course, what the KKK are. You're going to hear from a a real immigrant in just a little bit that talks about this very thing, the white supremacist label that's put on everybody. Everybody expects anybody from the South that disagrees with anything Joe Biden does to be a threat. I mean, a hardcore threat, and I mean literally willing to take a gun, pick up arms. Let me just say this. And we talked about this a little bit last night. I pray it never comes to that. I really do. Joe Biden, very stupidly and braggadociously a few years ago, he was one of the stops where he goes when he's talking about gun control, pats himself on the back for being a gun control advocate, doesn't even think about or talk about the Second Amendment and what is court-tested again and again and again all the way up to the Supreme Court about the American individual's rights to hold and bear arms. Of course, he has no regard for the rule of law, has no regard for what the Constitution says, no regard for what the Supreme Court renders when they render on things like the abortion, turning overturning Roe v. Wade, and the rights American people have, the Second Amendment. And this is the President of the United States, and I'm going to paraphrase what he said, but this is the context of what he said. He was at a a gun control thing where he wants to, his latest thing is uh, he wants to control, just like you have to have a background check when you go buy a gun, He wants to do the same thing for ammunition. And folks, that's not a meaningful, substantive thing. That's a pure political thing. He's going to raise some campaign money for doing that. Oh, we want to help you, Mr. President. We'll send you another $1,000. That's all it is, pontification. There's no facts there. There's no substance there. And it's certainly not constitutional. And if he tries to do it, just like every other thing he's ever tried to do, controlling guns, it'll be court tested and get kicked out. But that's not his purpose. He doesn't care. It's all about symbolism, nothing about substance. Substance would require him to adhere to the rule of law and to be a student of the Constitution, which, by the way, he claims that he is. Although all of this stuff that he does, he's flipped on it at some previous point in his very public life. He was pro-life. He was against gay marriage. So was Barack Obama. 
but they flipped, as did the Clintons, because of political expediency. It's all about politics. That's symbolism, no substance. But back to the conversation last night. I just brought up the stupid thing that Joe Biden said. Very, very stupid. Somebody heckled him from a crowd at one of these uh, Second Amendment things, meetings. I don't think it was. It, he, he gave a little speech, but it was just a group of people. And he looked down and very arrogantly said, you think you're going to overturn the government with your guns? We don't have guns. We have F-16s. Hey, hey, hey. And I don't know if the guy said anything more, but that just illustrates how detached from the reality of American life this president is. And I get tired of pointing out his deficiencies. I get tired of that. I get tired of pointing out the deficiencies of those who just lather for him and everything that he says, not because there's any substance in what he says, but simply because he's a Democrat. I told you that I was going to let you listen to somebody that has the real honest right to talk about white supremacy. I'm going to let you hear from her right after this. You don't want to miss her. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm a Verizon engineer, and today we're turning on 5G across the country, including right here in New York City. With the coverage of 5G nationwide and in more and more cities, the unprecedented performance of ultra-wideband. It will change your phone and how businesses do everything. I'm proud because we didn't build it the easy way. We built it right. This is the 5G America's been waiting for, only from Verizon. 5G ultra-wideband available only in parts of select cities. 5G nationwide available in 1,800-plus cities. Square Packages, the packaging specialists, are proud to present a box on both your houses. The untold story of the invention of the box and the family rivalry that nearly destroyed it. It's a tale about opening your heart, finding acceptance, and inventing the most efficient means of shipping and packaging that mankind has ever known. Proving that to find what's in your soul, you have to look outside the box and into another box, which is a house your home. And that truly is the greatest box of all. Tune in every Wednesday at 8 for this once-in-a-week-time television event, A Box on Both Your Houses, presented by Square Packages, the packaging specialists. You're fighting back the tsunami of ignorance with Dan Newman, TNN, the Truth News Network. Okay, so here's how the left defines a white supremacist. It's not 
about the Ku Klux Klan. It's not. Of course, that comes up every once in a while when they really want to paint somebody from the South as a bleak, uh, sycophant, hardcore hater. Oh, KKK. They forget to tell anybody that the KKK was invented, established by the Democrat Party in the South. Democrat Party. Not Republican Party. Democrat Party. KKK. Now, anybody that disagrees with this new 1619 Project slash critical race theory mantra out there, if you disagree with it, if you disagree with it, you're a white supremacist. So, earlier this week, in testimony in Congress, A real immigrant, somebody that came to the United States and couldn't speak a word of English, went through the legal process, became a citizen, learned how to speak, and by the way, ended up being a columnist for that not-so-conservative Wall Street Journal. She addressed all of this before Congress, and she did it way better than I could ever do it. I came to the United States at the age of four. I was an immigrant to the great state of New Jersey, and I grew up in Morgantown, West Virginia, a mostly white state. I was affirmed, I was supported, and I was able to grow up a girl who knew not a word of English when I arrived to become a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. I am sitting here before you today, apparently the face of white supremacy. I am wearing a shirt that my father made. My father survived literally white supremacy in India. My father is five foot three because when he was a boy, the white supremacists that were the British rule in India literally funneled food away from the people of India and my father starved. And so he grew up to be a young man who came to the United States of America because he believed in the values and principles of this great nation. My father made this shirt for me, inspired by the gown that Representative Ocasio-Cortez wore to the Met Gala. And it says on here the names that we, the parents in the United States of America, have been called, including in the video that you featured, Chairman Raskin. Things like domestic terrorist, white supremacist, QAnon moms, What is it that we, the parents, have dared to stand up against in the United States of America over the last couple years? It is a divisive ideology expressed through this book called Critical Race Theory. It is a book that is taught in law schools, but it is translated into our school systems with books like this, Not My Idea, a book about whiteness, the trickle-down effect of the demonization of any human being because of their race is books like this. Where does this book take us as an idea? It takes us to this very simple idea, an idea that is a new hierarchy of human value. There is no doubt that the hierarchy of human value that was about white supremacy is illegitimate. Every single person is opposed to the idea of white supremacy. 
But we cannot replace an old hierarchy of human value with a new hierarchy of human value that demonizes children with this book, Whiteness is a Bad Deal, Signing a Contract with the Devil. What is the message in this? The message is the shaming of human beings. No child should be shamed. And why is this a threat to our democracy? Because we then have posters like this one in the Los Angeles School District. What does it say? F America, with KKK replacing the C. Because the idea is that our nation has become a white supremacist nation. And that is not true. That is not the reality, and we can see exhibited here today this poster also, F the police. This is an ideology that I call the woke army. It is an ideology of activists who are going through America's school districts and our communities, and what they are doing is a threat to democracy. What is the greatest threat that our children face today? It is the learning loss that has happened in our school districts. The Department of Justice declares clearly the characteristics that lead any human being to extremism include having less education. Chairman Raskin, I don't know if you know it, but the reading level in your school district, in Montgomery County Schools, is at 32% of kids that are reading at, at grade level. Math is at 30%. Congressman, Congresswoman Tlaib is here. In Detroit, it's 18% and then 12% for math. It is a failure. This is a system failure. White supremacy must be defeated, as must all extremism. This is our mandate as adults for our children. Our children are in a crisis today, and the idea that we, the parents, are now the agents of white supremacy is unacceptable. All of these books that I have here today are the indoctrination that are being put into the minds of our children instead of the fundamentals that are critical to make them educated, enlightened citizens that protect our democracy. That is our greatest mandate, and that is the one that I am honored to serve with you to realize for our children. Thank you so much. And we didn't hear that from a polished speaking politician that is stepping up before Congress to pontificate about some deep pending piece of legislation. We heard that from a young woman. And she is taking on the labeling by people that are so-called endowed with the right, labeling everybody with whom they disagree and finding a way to denigrate people and drop them down on a level lower than they are just simply by placing a label that has been propped up to be something evil or something less than. And, of course, the go-to thing is, uh, you're, you're a Southerner. You're a member of the KKK. You're a white supremacist. Somehow, it just happened to be that anytime you disagree with a Democrat, that means you're a white supremacist. And of course, that's the lowest form of life in America today. Forget about all of those people that burned hundreds of thousands of dollars of real estate in Minneapolis 
destroyed public property, private property, injured a host of police officers, and cost businesses tens of millions of dollars in not protest, but just rioting. And what about the groups that went down the Chicago Miracle Mile? All those amazing shops along the Miracle Mile, they just broke into them, broke into them, broke windows out. I saw a guy crawling out of a window of a Rolex store with two of those big blue boxes, which contain solid gold, 18-karat gold Rolex president watches that each of them are 45000 bucks. Had two of those under his arms, just looked around and took off running. Now, what do you call those kind of people? We're not even supposed to call them criminals because that's racist because it was an African-American guy. If you disagree with anything he's doing, he's there. In fact, one activist on the street, a television person came up and asked her what she thought about what's going on. And she said, I don't think about this as being theft. These people are just fine, trying to find ways to feed their families. Really? You're going to steal a couple of $45,000 Rolex watches? Who are you going to sell them to that's going to pay you <laughs> what they're worth? I mean, that's ludicrous. So what's the definition today of white supremacy? It's very simple. It's somebody that disagrees with you politically. You're obviously an anointed saint that's endowed with all kinds of grace and virtue. So anybody that disagrees with you, of course, oh, you're going to be a white supremacist. Critical race theory, same thing, as she pointed out. Let me ask you this. Do you think this whole environment that has been created that embraces all of that, the choice of gender, being even transgender, all of those things that it's a whole mantra, a clump of mantra that the endowed among us have created and put together, made all the rules, Anybody who disagrees with the rules or disagrees with that mantra or even one letter of what is out there, you're you're simply a white supremacist. That's the easiest way for them to diminish you and put you off to the side. Is this a sustainable atmosphere? Can the United States of America, the strongest, most powerful nation in the world, I think we are at least now, I'm not sure. I've been sure of that my whole life, probably 62 or 63 years when I really became cognizant of what that was all about. I don't know that we're there today. I don't think we are the most powerful, but be that as it is, whether or not we are or not, it doesn't matter. Is this whole process that is on the streets today and it's being normalized every day by those who have been endowed with some kind of authority. And most of that is affirmation that they've given to themselves that it's not real, it's not genuine, but they just assume they have it. Like the union 
the unions in America, especially the teachers' unions. Oh, my gosh. The teachers' unions have destroyed public education, period. I won't even go down that road. But I think most everybody listening agrees with that. Public education, it's way in our rearview mirrors as far as being a, um, successful, being a real virtuous process that our kids should be immersed in. I recommend to everybody, find a way to get your kids in private school. Find a school that is committed totally in for education and get your kids, sacrifice anything and everything you have to. Find a way to get your kids there. As parents, that's job one. Educate your babies with real education, not these, not these hypothetical uh, woke policies and ideas and ideology that's out there. And don't you dare talk to one of my grandchildren at school without their parents even knowing about it, yet alone being in the process about transgenderism, about what you think they should identify as. Don't you dare do that. Poppy will go postal on you. Parents just got to stand up and take control of their kids' lives again. Let's move on. Gosh, we got 20 minutes left, 19 minutes left. I don't know if you heard about this, but the Department of Education, the Federal Student Aid Program, emailed about 9 million student loan forgiveness applicants on Tuesday to tell them the email they received approving their student loan forgiveness applications was an error. 9 million. The email told applicants their original approval emails were sent in error and the applications have not yet been approved or rejected at this point. President Biden announced the student loan relief program back in August. He needed to because he needed to have some weapons in the quiver of all his Democrat counterparts that were running in the midterm elections, and they had very little positive to run on. And so, hey, let me throw you a tidbit. I'll just go out there. We'll never be able to do it, but let's tell them. Let's promise them. We're going to cancel all your student debt. Multiple lawsuits were filed in response to his program as the U.S. Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ordered a nationwide injunction in Nebraska, Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, and South Carolina filed lawsuits questioning the legality of the program. Due to a vendor error, and I'm quoting here, you recently received an email with a subject line indicating your application for the one-time student loan debt relief plan had been approved. The subject line was inaccurate. Communicating clearly and accurately with borrows is a top priority. That's from a spokesperson for the Department of Education. We're in close touch with Accenture Federal Services as they take corrective action to ensure all borrowers and those affected have accurate information about debt relief. Tuesday's email may not seem like a big deal, but borrowers are trying to figure out how to move on with their lives. 
That's from Persis Yu, Deputy Executive Director and Managing Counsel for the Student Borrower Protection Center. And so they're hanging on those words, and those words matter. Now, of course, Joe stands up, and he says, we have the authority to enact the forgiveness. No, he said it this way. I have the authority to enact the forgiveness program under the HEROES Act of 2003 as a response to an emergency situation sparked by the COVID-19 pandemic. The HEROES Act of 03 grants the Secretary of Education authority to, quote, waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to the student financial assistance programs under Title IV of the Act as the Secretary deems necessary, according to the legislation. The HEROES Act did not apply to somebody that's just currently going to college. Joe would like to think that could be what the HEROES Act applied to. No, it applied to people that were actually in service, military service. Oh my gosh. The Department of Education received 26 million applications for loan forgiveness and approved 16 million before the program was halted. The Supreme Court is set to make a decision on the loan forgiveness program in the spring. We're waiting with bated breath. So there has been another big program pending in this lame duck section session of Congress that ends at the end of this year. And it's lame duck. What that means is one of the parties in power is going out. That would be the power of the Democrat Party in the House of Representatives. The Republican Party is taking it over. So there was another thing that went along that was out there being floated, and a lot of people thought it was going to happen. But after outcry from conservatives and Republican lawmakers who weren't willing to betray the GOP's commitment to the rule of law, legal immigration, and border security, an attempt, a really big one, strong one, powerful one, to grant mass amnesty to DACA beneficiaries is, according to reporting late last night, it's dead in the water. Unsurprisingly, the fatally flawed legislative framework that was supposed to gin up support on both sides of the aisle in the Senate did exactly the opposite as Republicans who limped across the midterm election finish line with barely a majority in the House and a loss in the Senate were not ready to hitch their names to a bill that is toxic among Republican voters. This is what one newspaper reported. I'm going to quote it. This is from an article. Senate Republicans and now ex-Democrats are trying to push through a bill granting amnesty to millions of illegal aliens. Senator Tom Tillis, a Republican of North Carolina, and Kirsten Cinnamon, independent from Arizona, who just left the Democrat Party, are the brain trust of this legislation that is sure to infuriate the rest of the conservative base when they read the fine print. On the other side, keep looking for how major labor unions, who are not fans of rampant illegal immigration, react to this bill. 
There will be no hearings. That would expose the grand amnesty plan. Two million recipients of Obama's DACA or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals will get put on the pathway to citizenship. Still, they can sponsor extended family members once they're through the process. It doesn't resolve the immigration issue, secure the border, or take it off the table for either party. All it does is reset the clock for another mass amnesty action for the next generation because these bills will undoubtedly incentivize more people to come here illegally if they know Washington will citizenship track them eventually. The framework for the bill, no text has even been released, was so bad that even Joe Biden said he was encouraged by the proposal, which told conservatives everything they needed to know. If Biden thought the framework was a hopeful sign of progress, it's a deeply flawed idea. (laughs) If anything, he supports. It's got to be flawed. Biden still won't admit there's a crisis at the border. He spent more time falsely smearing brave border agents than he has trying to stop the unmitigated flow of illegal immigrants, including a frightening number of individuals on the terror watch list. If someone that deluded about reality thinks your legislative proposal to grant citizenship to DACA kids is a step in the right direction, any sane Republicans would have immediately turned around and run. Thankfully, oh my gosh, thank God for now at least, it seems enough solidly conservative lawmakers did exactly that. Therefore, the amnesty deal's done. Now the question remains whether a similar deal will be attempted again in the new Congress that kicks off in January and whether senators like Tom Tillis of North Carolina will be able to memory hold this latest attempt to abandon conservatives and border security for some inexplicable desire to look like a team player (laughs) for the other side, for the other side. I hate political parties. I'm just saying. I hate them. I don't want to brag and say I'm like Thomas and Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, this is what he said about political parties. And I'm paraphrasing it because he used the king's English when he when he made this comment. Basically what he said was if I had to be a member of a political party to go to heaven. I wouldn't go to heaven. (laughs) That was from way back then in the 1700s. Can you imagine how much worse it is now? There's some new news. Oh my gosh, I hate to even do this. It's about COVID. And I waited till late in the show to talk about it because I wanted to make sure everybody had had their morning biscuit and a couple of cups of coffee. I didn't want to make them throw up a new report indicates COVID-19 origins may be linked to a bioweapons program in China. Not a bioweapons lab, but a bioweapons program. Republican members of the House Intelligence Committee found some evidence that COVID could potentially be tied to China's biological weapons research program. According to a brand new just-released report, 
the GOP is alleging that these claims spilled over into the human population during an incident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan, China. Contrary to the implication of the intelligence community's declassified report, based on our investigation involving a variety of public and non-public information, we conclude there are indication that SARS-CoV-2 may have been tied to China's biological weapons research program and spilled over to the human population during a lab-related incident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The intelligence community failed to adequately address this information in its classified updated assessment. When we attempted to raise the issue with them, they failed to respond. The report acknowledges that the coronavirus was probably not a biological weapon. However, Republicans remained skeptical of allegations that SARS-CoV-2 was a biological weapon because they're supposed to by scientifically invalid claims. Additionally, the report claims the Intelligence Committee downplayed important information relating to the possible links between COVID-19 and China's bioweapons research based in part on input from outside experts, adding that the committee refuses to be transparent with the public, which likely skewed the public's understanding of key issues and deepened mistrust. The Republicans made it clear these findings do not resolve the question of where exactly COVID came from. However, the information is important to furthering the public's understanding, and we will seek to declassify the classified version of our report in the next Congress to further the conversation. Now, what is all that gobbledygook? What does it mean? when you pull out all of the fluff and just say, here it is. I'm going to tell you, I've been around politics long enough to know. I've been around politicians that try to tiptoe around and say something about something specific, something controversial, and they want to tiptoe around it, and they want to make it seem like they're saying, well, I don't think it's this way, but it might be, and if it is, Well, we didn't know about it, so we're not responsible for any of it, but it just might be. And they do that long enough. It supposedly gives them an excuse to say, well, I didn't know, I wasn't part of it. But I think because of that, it is almost unquestionable that China created COVID-19 for the purpose of, of using it as some type of bioweapon against its opponents. And all I can say, if that's why they did it, kudos to the Chinese Communist Party because they created something that was effective and worked, even though what it's done and what it's doing is killing people, maiming other people. And it's making a whole lot of people in the United States debilitated. And if that was their purpose, they've been successful. But it's time. Dr. Fauci, it's time to stand up and take responsibility 
for the medicine that you supposedly promoted and put out there that is literally poison. And that's it, folks. (laughs) Here at TNN Live on Thursday, we're done. Have yourself a very merry little Christmas. The Carpenter's version. I came to the United States at the age of four. And, uh, You pushed the wrong button, Dan. Why don't we try again? Have yourself a very Merry Christmas Day today. Greeting cards have all been sent. The Christmas rushes through. But I still have one wish to make. A special one for Yeah.